0: Jason Lewis, and I'm Todd DeShida, and I'm Thomas Mills. Welcome to Climate Optimus. As a couple concerned citizens, we're on a journey to explore climate solutions and ways each of us can make a difference. You know, I want to say a quick thank you to our community of supporters. As a 100% listener funded podcast, your donations are literally the fuel that enable us to bring you the content that you hear. And if you are a regular listener and aren't part of our community, consider joining us as a monthly contributor. Even, you know, $5 a month goes a long way on our end, and you can feel good knowing you're doing your part to support our work. Think of it as buying Todd a grande latte from Starbucks, because I think that's about what 5 bucks will get you these days. It's insane. So all you have to do is, is head over to our website, climateoptimist.co, and click the donate button and while you're there sign up for our monthly newsletter where we offer insights on climate solutions and news and opportunities to take action as well as of course some reasons for hope you know we really have been lucky here at climate optimus with all the fantastic guests we've had you know from renowned climate scientists to cutting edge entrepreneurs to major nonprofits and this week, we're actually going to be taking a slightly different direction and talking with a, a climate leader on the political side of things. You know, having someone who's been on the front lines of, of climate in Congress for a long time gives us a chance to hear a different perspective and, and hopefully get a sense of where we might be able to make progress despite, you know, a current divided federal government here in the U.S. But before we go there, Todd, you got a reason for hope for us? I do.
1: Uh, United Airlines has just announced that they will be investing a hundred million dollars in sustainable aviation fuel. Boeing also recently said it's going to double its use of sustainable fuel this year. London's Heathrow Airport also announced this week that it was aiming to triple its sustainable fuel usage this year, from half a percent to one and a half percent. So obviously. Sustainable aviation fuel is all the rage at the moment. Uh, The EU is requiring 2% of fuel from sustainable resources by 2025. And 60, is this a typo? 60% by 2050. Nope, not at all. So in 25 years, from 2 to 60. And of course, the U.S., uh, the Inflation Reduction Act that passed last fall also contains tax incentives for low-carbon jet fuels. Um, So yeah. I didn't see really any anything in here I don't think uh, from Australia but uh, you know what can you do about those guys I guess I think we'll be playing <laughs> chases
2: on that one But I just wish you guys would hurry up and get it to 100% so I can come back and visit you again
1: <laughs> Just get in a rowboat and start paddling
2: Yeah yeah too far for me to swim I mean there are people that do these
0: things for fun now so you know shouldn't be that much of a lift for you
2: that's true. If they want a challenge, I could just hitch a ride with somebody find someone fit, fit much fitter than me that can paddle.
0: I mean, if, if Greta can take a sailboat from Europe to the U.S., you know, figure you can get one from Australia back to the U.S. True, true. Well, I, I will say that, you know, if you're not close to sustainable aviation fuels, and I wouldn't say I'm super close to it, these percentages can feel pretty small. But I, I think the reality is, when you start talking about the volumes that we're dealing with here, the fact that we're starting to build some momentum here is is huge. You know, it's not going to be tomorrow when we're, all of us are, are flying on, on planes with sustainable fuel, but mm-hmm. this is what it takes, right? It, you need demand to build more of these plants. You need funding to, you know, to help drive that development and you need some, you know, economic certainty. And so it feels to me like there's the right mix of things in place. And so, yeah, excited to see where things are in a couple of years from now.
2: Yeah, and I think Porsche are now pushing hard with manufacturing of e-fuels, which are basically uh, hydrocarbon-based fuels, but using carbon dioxide is extracted from the atmosphere. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's all playing along the same lines. But of course, I don't see that ever taking off with um, you know, typical vehicles because they don't need the energy density compared to an aircraft. So hopefully the work that Porsche is doing ends up benefiting the aviation sector. Fingers crossed. So our our guest today
0: is Congressman Earl Blumenauer. He's been representing Oregon's 3rd District in the U.S. House of Representatives since 1996. In his time in Congress, he's served on multiple committees, including vice chair of the Select Committee on Energy Independence and Global Warming. He's currently a member of the Ways and Means Committee and chairman of the Subcommittee on Trade as well as a member of the Subcommittee on Health. You know, these committee assignments have given him a a unique platform to really promote critical issues like healthcare reform, Medicare for All, and the Green New Deal to combat global warming. In addition to being a longtime leader on climate, he's been a champion for rebuilding and renewing our nation's infrastructure, economic security for families, protection of public lands, stopping gun violence, ending prohibition on marijuana, and criminal justice reform. Earl is a lifelong resident of Portland, Oregon, and attended Lewis and Clark College, and stoked to uh, have him here on the program. Earl, welcome to Climate Optimist. My pleasure. So let's start you out with our basic question. When it comes to efforts to address climate change, what makes you hopeful?
3: I think we're reaching a point where... The widespread recognition that we simply cannot continue business as usual has been driven home, particularly for those of us who live in the Pacific Northwest. We have seen the evidence of the climate crisis, extreme heat, wildfires, poor air quality. It is something that no rational person can continue to ignore. And I think there's broader recognition that it is time to accelerate our efforts. Seeing what Congress did uh, as we concluded uh, the last session, unprecedented investments in renewable energy, putting us on a path to uh, meet our climate goals, watching the investment in rebuilding and renewing America. And most important is that, led primarily by young people, but we're watching citizens take action uh, on an individual level in ways that are unprecedented. It's cannot continue. People recognize it. They're taking action. And we have unprecedented tools at our disposal.
0: Yeah, I, I definitely, you know, in talking to our various guests, there's definitely a sense of, of momentum and certainly um, not a place anymore where you can ignore the realities of it. So I, Maybe a more personal question, why, you know, why is climate change such an important issue for you?
3: Well, this has been core of my public service career for decades. Uh, I was on the Portland City Council when Portland was the first major city uh, in America to commit to reducing our greenhouse gas emissions. We've watched what has happened here in pursuit of energy efficiency in terms of looking at the impacts in our environment with glaciers disappearing, extreme weather events. It has been part and parcel of everything I have done for decades. And watching this effort spread across the country, watching what's happened on campuses, it's all coming together in a way that I think is extraordinarily encouraging. Uh, It's not by any stretch of the imagination everything we need to do, but compared to where we were even uh, a year and a half ago, uh, it's really a sea change.
0: Yeah, seeing the the IRA pass was I think a big relief for a lot of folks that, that watch it closely. So wondering, you know, we're talking about the fact that a majority of Americans, you know, are concerned about climate change. Do you see perspective changing among your Republican colleagues on, you know, sort of their willingness to acknowledge it's a problem and the next step being their willingness to to act on it?
3: Most of my Republican colleagues are boxed in between what their constituents uh, who are Uh, fans of Fox News, climate denial, skepticism about any federal action, as opposed to what they see with their own eyes. It's hard for them. I don't think it should be as hard as it appears. And the stakes are getting higher. Uh, The impacts on red states, if anything, are greater. What's happened in terms of extreme weather events, this is a reality in red America. Every bit as great as it is in blue states uh, if not greater
0: i guess maybe that's a that's a lead into the question that really wanted to focus on in our discussion which is you know kind of where do you see opportunities to make climate progress at a federal level this year given you know our divided congress
3: Part of the opportunity is to be found with the legislation that we talked about in terms of the Inflation Reduction Act, the infrastructure. Uh, We have unprecedented resources available to us to deploy renewable energy, to be able to deal with electric vehicles. Uh, This is an area that will keep us uh, busy for the better part of this decade. We're seeing advances in technology, energy storage, batteries. The deployment of electrical vehicles is accelerating. Things we can do, for example, with electric trucks. It's remarkable having been sort of stuck for years. Now these pieces are coming together and accelerating. We're also seeing that people are aware broadly of climate effects in terms of agriculture, which is one of the major sources of greenhouse gas emissions. We're finding people in the agricultural sector looking at different uh, methods of cultivation, for instance, and crop selection that is less carbon intensive. Uh, Across the board, we're seeing these opportunities arise, and people are finding that it's not all that hard. In some cases, it actually improves productivity all of these things together are much different than what we faced uh, even 3 or 4 years ago so
0: you know i guess in summary it sounds like momentum's continuing to build the, the catalyst for that in many ways being the inflation reduction act and and the infrastructure bill are there specific ways in which congress can continue to help you know realize all the benefits of those bills in other words you know i know some some of my former colleagues in the renewable energy space have talked about you know long lead times in terms of getting projects permitted are there you know opportunities to let's say take on like permitting reform or other pieces where congress has the potential to kind of remove roadblocks if you will
3: well that's a role that we all play uh, unfortunately uh, particularly on the progressive side of the spectrum people are better at blocking projects than moving them forward. Um, That's just the sad reality. There are uh, concerns that people have uh, on location of facilities, for instance. Uh, We've got people who are environmentalists who are fighting offshore wind. Uh, There is uh, very little recognition that we need to dramatically improve the efficiency of the electrical grid, or we're not going to be able to take advantage of these renewables. I think there's a growing awareness that we have to do business a little different, and this is something that is within our capacity. Uh, if it is done in a spirit of being thoughtful, inclusive, and focused on the goals, I think there are opportunities to uh, reform the overall process. Uh, this is something that uh, deeply troubles me. I've watched really well-intended people who are uh, focused against wind energy. Uh, They have uh, concerns about uh, transmission, which is uh, absolutely essential if we're going to have an exponential increase in renewable energy. We've got to get it uh, to people where they live. Right. And that's that's been hard for some because it is much easier to focus on what we're against than what we're for.
0: Yeah. Unfortunately, I think you're right there. Um, Do you see, you know, opportunities to sort of change the public's awareness? I mean, I think sometimes folks might be supportive of the idea of renewable energy, but is there an opportunity to educate Americans more broadly, especially those who are concerned about climate change? that we need to all be embracing these solutions. And that might mean that there's a transmission line where there wasn't before, or you know, some solar panels or wind turbines where there might not have been, but that that enables us to address, obviously, a much greater threat.
3: Well, I, I would hope that there's a much greater sense of urgency, even though we've got a great start with our legislative victories last year with uh, opportunities for new resources, for renewables, for instance, we have no time to waste. The planet is cooking, uh, climate is changing. Uh, The Colorado River, I mean, it's just remarkable the sense of crisis for people who look hard at this information, but too often don't have the sense of urgency. Uh, that don't see this as an immediate challenge. And even though we're on a path to meet the American goals, it's not enough. Right. It's simply not enough. So uh, being able to uh, listen to objections, but to be focused on how we get this job done. How do we electrify more and more of the economy? How do we deploy new technology. Uh, how are we going to fight deforestation? I have some legislation that would uh, penalize people who grow commodities on land that is illegally harvested. Soy, palm oil, cocoa. Uh, this is driving uh, the loss of what we refer to as the, the planet's lungs uh, in the Amazon, for instance. There's, there's no single solution. But these are things that people increasingly are sympathetic to. They understand that it's tied to the larger picture. We're finding uh, the business community much more flexible in helping in some of these areas. Is it enough? No. But it's certainly a very remarkable change in direction and sets the stage for greater progress at a time when we desperately need. That progress.
0: Yeah, indeed. Well, you actually teed up a, a question that I that I had for you because I've um, done a little bit of reading about the Forest Act, and as somebody who is you know well aware of the the threat of deforestation, especially in tropical regions, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about the more about the Act and kind of where things stand. And
3: sure, the opportunity to be able to to require that industry has control of its supply chain is absolutely essential. Uh, This is what we used with legislation a decade ago to fight illegal logging, requiring that business is responsible for its supply chain and not allowing uh, illegally harvested timber into the manufacture of products. We want to use this same approach dealing with commodities like palm and cocoa and soy. It is more widely accepted uh, with friends in the private sector that this is going to be an an essential ingredient. We're finding that people are now paying more attention to commodity productions and the need to have people responsible for where they get their products. I've had conversations with people in the European Union, environmentalists. Uh, There's growing recognition that this is essential if we're going to be able to fight against uh, accelerated deforestation. And this is something that is a mechanism uh, that goes back over a century with the original Lacey act in the united states so it's a, a mechanism that people understand or are comfortable with the more that we get other countries monitoring uh this legislation and mimicking it it magnifies the impact of our work
0: so to make sure i'm understanding correctly so it sounds like with the proposal of the forest act there are other countries that are interested in potentially modeling yes. that approach yes
3: I've taken this to uh, conversations with other uh, parliamentarians who are involved with international trade. We've compared notes, and some of them are introducing uh, similar legislation in the European Union or Japan or Australia. We've got attention of people who are involved with these global supply chains for the commodities, so the more people that buy in, the easier it is to have uniform application of this standard, and no one stands out to be disadvantaged. The disadvantage occurs if they're not going along with a global consensus.
0: So it, how would it work sort of in practice if I were a um, somebody who maybe imported soybeans or imports soybeans, if the Forest Act were to pass, what? What would that mean for me in terms of how I manage my supply chain?
3: Well, you will be held accountable for being able to document where your commodities come from. Uh, There are a range of uh, watchdog organizations that are monitoring this. People will have to be able to document uh, that their supply chain includes protection from illegally harvested forest land. Uh, We've had uh, great partners that helped us craft the original legislation 10 years ago and are still monitoring and following through so that it's not uh, standing out of the people who are obeying the law. It's the people that aren't obeying the law that will be suspect and will be penalized.
0: Gotcha. So if if you're looking forward to this Congress, what prospects do you see in terms of being able to get the... The Forest Act passed, and and how can all of us as folks who are, you know, passionate about addressing climate change help you in that in that endeavor?
3: Well, it's important for people to be cognizant of this issue of where products come from. Uh, There is a growing consumer power uh, that wants to make sure that products are developed in a sustainable fashion, and that people can justify and prove the sustainability. We're looking at big food companies now who historically have been uh, somewhat reluctant to dive into this, but big companies like Mars and Nestle are increasingly recognizing that they have a stake in a sustainable future for the planet and that there are dangers to their reputation if they aren't part of global leadership.
0: You know, on Climate optimists, we encourage folks to reach out to their representatives and that it's important to let them know that you're concerned about climate change. As a leader in Congress interested in your perspective on does that matter, right? Is it important for constituents to be reaching out and and what's the best way for them to reach out, et cetera?
3: Well, it does matter. And that may be the, the most important element the more that this is part of how people shop, it makes a difference. The more that people will demand accountability for the products they see in companies and shelves. Ultimately, the probably the most important thing that all of us can do to fight climate change is to raise the awareness of the billions of decisions that we all make every day that point to a low carbon future, that point to energy conservation, for renewables, all of these individual elements collectively are what's going to make the difference. We've been going down this path for two centuries, not being mindful of the impact of carbon pollution on the environment. Well, that's changing, Uh, but we have to redouble those efforts, hold all of us accountable for the individual decisions that we make every day, what we buy, where we shop, how we move. And I hope that that's part of what we can do in our community and with the federal government is enhance those individual decisions, whether it's what we're encouraging people to do in their private life, or it's how the federal government itself operates with all the billions of dollars that we expend Uh, in terms of products and services, if the federal government leads by example and all of us do our part, I think we're well on our way.
0: Yeah, it was certainly encouraging to see uh, the Postal Service finally, you know, moving in the direction of electrification. Right. Good win. Well, Earl, I just want to say thank you for coming on Climate Optimus and sharing your perspective. It's heartening to hear you're full of hope and obviously, you know, we have a lot more work to do, but but value your perspective and, you know, helping shape how we, you know, as, as individual citizens, you know, help, help deal with this crisis.
3: Well, that's, what's going to make the difference. Thanks for your attention and interest.
0: So what did you guys think of the uh, interview with representative Blumenauer? Uh, Don't bolt jump in at once.
1: Well, no, <laughs> I mean,
0: You know, one item I was interested in hearing your reaction to was when Earl talked about how Republicans can feel stuck between what they know to be true about climate change and the views of their constituents. And, you know, we've obviously looked at a lot of data on voters and their support for different climate solutions. And while it's true that Republican support is generally lower, there are certain types of actions that a majority of Republicans support, like providing tax rebates for home energy efficiency upgrades.
1: Well, some of it probably goes back to the fact that I think we've looked at these polls before, and they've been a little depressing, where you look at where some of these issues rank on the list of things that people are concerned about in the next election, and they're down, you know, it's down at number 21, you know, of 25 or whatever, and right. so even though you know the numbers like well yeah 70 you know 5% of these people support this thing but it's you know 21st on their list of things they're even going to worry about so that probably right. makes it a difference and i also think that you know some of these outfits are really taking a play out of the old NRA kind of playbook i think on if you're just loud if you get people worked up and you're loud, you get the loudest voices out there you can really you can really sway people when it comes time for voting. I think they focus on the dumb stuff too. They get people worked up about gas appliances and then they lo- wrap everything into you know, every climate thing we're doing is you know going to take away someone's gas cooktop or whatever and so they lose it. You know, you
0: you lose a battle just over misinformation, I think. Yeah, it, it, I mean clearly he's spent many a year, you know, pushing on this and so I'm I'm sure the the winds are are hard to come by but um but yeah i think i think it's great that he's got the forest act out there and you know we've for folks who pay close attention we've we've talked about it a little bit um, in some of our other podcasts but it it does feel like you know if you could pass anything in a in a divided congress it would be something like the forest act where you at least have some republican interest and you know it's not it's It wouldn't be a small accomplishment, right? I mean, deforestation globally accounts for ten to fifteen percent of greenhouse gas emissions. And that's massive. And then you know the bill is intended to really clamp down on the commodities that that are driving that, right? I mean, you talked about palm oil, you know soybeans, cattle. you know, if you were to look kind of by look at the list of things that are the biggest contributors to deforestation, you know, cattle's around forty percent soy and palm oil about you know 20 percent. so you've got 60 percent just with those three products and you know the soy is going a lot to animal feed uh you know palm oil is going a lot in as, as a food additive but you know if you can address that with the u.s and then as earl talks about you have other nations join in then you really do force these countries that aren't taking it seriously to to step up to the plate so
2: yeah i'm in mean- Total agreement. I think it's it might be a little uh, difficult to administer, but I see a lot of the emphasis is placed on the importer to prove um, or disprove where their product comes from. But when you're starting to talk commodity-based products and you know, everything in the same silo, it it often does become difficult to prove exactly where the actual source is. And so that, that sort of leads on to another thing, is there will be collateral damage from this. There will be growers in those specific countries that have been doing the right thing that will be affected because market the market of the US will be shut off to them potentially in the future. But unfortunately, that's sometimes what's going to happen. In fact, it reminds me of the situation in, in Europe with the um, border adjustment tariffs being put on products because of carbon dioxide emissions in other countries and you know there will be people who have been doing the right thing and will continue to do the right thing but they will be affected because the country as a whole will drag them down so yeah no doubt the the devil's in the details and i guess
0: when you look at where all the deforestation is taking place just like it's a handful of commodities it's really a handful of countries and so yeah i i I think we can't let the perfect be the enemy of good enough. And if something like this could pass, I think it could be, yeah, it could be a really positive thing.
1: There might be no way to know this, but I'm curious as to what, you know, if you put the bill on the floor right now, what what would the support be and what would the opposition be? And would any of it be based on what any of them actually believed about it or what would it be? Because you never know sometimes why people will vote or not support something, you know, could be somebody gave them a look you know, and their fear that they're going to be wrapped up in a carpet, you know, at the bottom of the Potomac, that their political career is going to be
0: there, (laughs) you know? I am not a political strategist, but I got to think there's probably some potentially positive messaging for Republicans in there, right? I mean, you know, let's say, let's talk about beef, right? You could argue that you're protecting American, you know, cattle, right? Sure. Totally. You never know, there could be some little thing that, that derails it, but sure for the for the most part, you know, if you're talking about constituents, I would think there's some good arguments in these rural districts around protecting the cattle market and protecting the soy market, et cetera you know the the other bill or the other potential you know area of opportunity with this Congress that's been that's been floated at least you know in some of the political spheres is the idea of permitting reform, you know when it comes to to renewables. and you know for folks who don't know a lot of you know a lot of projects that that might normally you know be able to move through the system and let's say from from permitting to construction maybe it only takes a couple of years get get hung up in a lot of places and you know especially when we're talking about transmission projects that are helping you know move renewable resources to where the demand is and right now the you know permitting system is pretty convoluted
2: yeah and i i think whilst whilst I hear his concerns about NIMBYism and the fact that many on the left uh, are the ones actually blocking a lot of these projects. I, I also believe that a lot of these concerns are real and need to be heard because sometimes we can end up doing things better. I mean, we've got to remember that a lot of these companies are doing things for the lowest possible cost and um sometimes that's not always the best long-term solution and won't you know over the 100 year life of the infrastructure whatever it might be give you the lowest operating cost of that infrastructure i think transmission lines are one thing that come to mind and they're definitely one of the issues that's holding up a lot of renewable projects all over the world and um you're following the lead of the europeans where many transmission lines are now put underground I think is maybe not such a bad thing yes it's more expensive up front but you don't have the risks with forest fires taking out transmission lines you don't have the risks of salt build up like we have in Australia on transmission lines or ice storms like they had in Europe which led to a lot of the transmission lines being put underground in the future well going forward so yeah, I, I think we need to listen to these people, but at the same time, we've got to work out what's what, what are real concerns and what are really just there to be roadblocks, because it is just blatant NIMBYism. You
0: know, especially when it comes to transmission, because I feel like it's more contentious. There isn't maybe the, the obvious benefit of a bunch of, you know, wind turbines out there producing power. Um, yeah, if it, if it removes, you know, some of that resistance and enables you to, you know, streamline enables you to reduce the timeline, right? A lot of transmission takes you know, up to a decade to put in. We don't have decades. So whatever we can do to help advance that, and as you say, maybe do it in a more thoughtful way, could be could be a positive.
1: Yeah, there's always impact. And you don't do a service to your cause if you try to ignore the impacts that, that your solution is going to have or try to sweep that under the rug and it always seems to come back to bite you. You know, in the end, there, there's impact to wind turbines, there's impact to... You know there's electric cars and batteries and where they get the the minerals for this st- you know there's always these impacts and the naysayers are always going to bring that stuff to light and you kind of just have to find a way to like embrace that and solve for it you know rather than just kind of write that stuff off right it'll it'll kind of build against you
0: i do think the dialogue needs to be bigger picture right because whether we like to admit it or not there's impacts no matter the energy source, you know, it's it's really being mindful about what is the what is the least impactful solution when it comes to the environment and and otherwise. But as long as you're turning on a light switch, that energy has to come from somewhere. So, you know, I guess wrapping up our ranting about uh, about energy. Um, so I, I really appreciated, you know, Representative Blumenauer's emphasis on all of us being involved in, in making the change, you know, because it's not gonna happen if it's if it's just it's just government or just business, I mean, we're at a point where everybody needs to be, you know, kind of pulling on the oars. And so this week, given the focus uh, of our interview with Representative Blumenauer, we want to ask everybody to help support him in getting the FOREST Act across the finish line. So we'll have a link on our website to a petition that you can sign that calls for, you know, passing the FOREST Act. Also encourage folks to email your representative and tell them we need to pass it. You know, there are a number of co-sponsors out there, but it doesn't hurt to, you know, nudge everybody in that direction. So that's it for this week's episode. Thanks for tuning in. Climate Optimus is made possible by Climate Stewards Collective. You can find us on the web at climateoptimist.co. And don't forget to follow us on social at Climate Optimist Podcast.